You're listening to Work Thrive, a podcast for entrepreneurial women redefining the meaning of work. And I'm your host, Katie Glenn. In each episode, you will hear candid conversations with female founders, movement makers, and thought leaders to help you navigate success on your own terms. So let's get started. What a month June has been, right? This has been nothing short of eye-opening, in many ways, than one. And I'm truly grateful to be back speaking with you all. But first, please note, Black Lives Matter. As a black woman, I cannot explain the weight of what these past few weeks have been like. Heavy doesn't quite cut it. But I am, if anything, incredibly grateful and hopeful to see the strides our community our generation and our allies have taken to bring justice where necessary and spark these long overdue conversations. Continuing this season, I decided to deviate slightly from the original plan. Instead, I'll be highlighting the incredible work being done through entrepreneurship by black women here in the UK. I'll be devoting the remainder of this season to just that, black, British, female founders, movement makers, and thought leaders. Our lives matter, our stories matter, and us collecting these coins and reinvesting them in our communities matter. We have to take up space. So in this episode, I'll be speaking to Izzy Obeng, Managing Director of Founderdivine, an inclusive community that helps startup founders build from scratch. Less than 1% of venture capital funding goes to Black founders globally, and less than 0.2% of that goes to Black women. Izzy is on a mission to change that. In this episode, we talk about Izzy's journey from management consultancy to Foundervine, the current diversity crisis in entrepreneurial spaces, how new founders can build and scale a profitable business, and mistakes new founders make, and even how to seek funding for your idea. Spaces and communities like Foundervine are necessary, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did recording it. Jenny, I absolutely love what you're doing with Foundervine. So tell me a little bit about yourself and what inspired you or led you to launch Foundervine. Yes. So my background is in management consulting. So before starting Foundervine, I spent a few years working for big four professional services firm where um, I was sort of building corporate training programs, basically, across the public sector and different private sector institutions. And I just got very disillusioned. And at the time, I was coaching uh, young people, helping them get into business, entrepreneurship. And I couldn't help but think, what if we could put the same level of investment into helping young people who were just figuring out their ideas as we did into kind of corporate training? What would we be able to achieve with that? So we built a program with Foundervine that essentially helped young people build startups from scratch and we focus on uh, young people specifically from underrepresented backgrounds and kind of that's where we are now. Amazing and what did that journey look like because I've noticed you said we so did you gather a team did you do it alone how did you approach the beginnings of Foundervine? Yeah so at the beginning uh, when it was it was just an idea and at the time it was it was an idea for something a little bit different, more a network bringing together young people who were interested in business, but the kind of 
you know, what it is now wasn't wasn't quite there at the time. And I reached out to two people, um, who one of them was a colleague and one who was another professional in my network and asked for help. I thought, guys, I, I don't I don't really know what I'm doing here, but I have this idea and I think I'm onto something. Um, and over time I kind of just slowly absorbed them into sound design and now both of them are directors within the company alongside me two years later. And we've now got a team of nine people who are all working in different ways to kind of advance our mission, which is helping remove the social barriers for entrepreneurship and increasing access to diverse founders and technology. Wow, that's incredible. And when you say you lured them in, how exactly did you pitch the idea of Foundervine to those in your network? And how important is it to have established a network for when these sort of ideas come about? I always think that your community is the most important thing you're going to build if you make the decision to go into entrepreneurship. It's the difference between uh, wasting a lot of time and resource and getting halfway there and actually just, you know, building the kind of network who will help you and help you do things in half the time that it might take you otherwise. And it's a bit cliche, but that phrase, your network is your net worth, is so important and I live by it. When I was starting out, it was, like I said, so much stuff that I didn't know about starting a business. And it was really my network at the time who helped me understand things like different legal structures and how to market a business and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, to your question around how I sold them the idea, I think the great thing about what we do is that that it's very obvious to see um, in our society today what the need is for what we do and my background personally. So I grew up in Tottenham in North London and I kind of came into my teenage and sort of early adult years um, at a time when there was a lot of tension in Tottenham in terms of community relations, race relations. And I knew a lot of young people who had a lot of potential, who were really, really bright, really, really smart, but who simply hadn't been given access to opportunities, hadn't been given access to decent work and had kind of gone off the rails and, you know, decided to kind of pursue paths that weren't as conducive to, you know, living a good life or being successful. And a lot of my motivation to run what has become Sound Divine has been in seeing how much wasted potential there is in our society. And on top of that, the complete lack of diversity when it comes to people who are building technology in our society, who are leading the future of our economy. So important that our communities reflect and um, our business reflects our communities and that we're actually training young people in the skills that they're going to need tomorrow. So I think when it came to convincing my network what the need was for something like Foundline, thankfully it wasn't it wasn't that hard. Wow, that's incredible. And you are absolutely right in saying that one of the things that really pain me as an individual is how much wasted potential exists out there because of the lack of access, but also because of the lack of representation. And in saying that, how important is it for our community to really see people who look like us do things that we don't necessarily see on, you know, in mainstream media or we don't necessarily have the access to because they're not really shown, not necessarily because they don't exist? 
Yes, it's something that I often talk about, how important representation is. And I fully also live by the fact that you can't see what you can't see. And there are so many brilliant people within our communities who are achieving so much. And for whatever reason, their stories aren't necessarily brought to light. And so a big part of our work, for example, is not just bringing in young people who don't have many skills in business and giving them their first steps in entrepreneurship. Another part of what we do is finding professionals, early career, mid-career, really senior, and getting them into our programs to mentor these young people. So often these professionals are the first kind of contact our young people have had with, you know, a senior black woman or Asian woman who is in the industry that they want to go into and building those networks and allowing them to really, really high level networks with these big corporates is is so powerful to see. And we've had numerous stories of young people coming onto our programs and finding mentors who have then gone on to invest in their businesses, who have gone on to introduce them to potential corporate partners, to take them on as mentees following our programs. And that is just so amazing to see. So it's our responsibility, I think, particularly as people of colour, particularly as women, you know, if you're LGBT+, if you're um, diverse in your own way, to to actually take that opportunity to coach young people and make yourself visible where society doesn't always let you be visible so these young people can find you, can see you and eventually can be you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree. Like you said, you know, we can't be what we can't see. And I always, I guess, attribute my desire for success to the likes of the people that I have seen, the likes of Serena Williams or Michelle Obama or Oprah kind of look at these women and think because they can, I can too. But when we don't have those examples or we don't at least see those examples in our communities, it makes it harder to really believe in ourselves and have the confidence that we are actually capable of achieving the things that we want to, or even being exposed to different ways of success. For me, I grew up wanting to be a lawyer because that was kind of like the only, one of the only things I really saw you either a doctor, a lawyer or an accountant. And it was like, when I realized at 17 that I no longer wanted to be a lawyer, it was like being in the middle of nowhere. Like, what do you actually do now? Because you haven't really been exposed to different avenues for success. I think back at it now, I probably would have maybe studied media and communications and technology or something like that, because now that I can see women who have done the things that I now desire to do or am passionate about, it makes it more accessible for me. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's just so important. And you mentioned mentorship. And one of the things that I found is as women, we're probably less likely to have mentors and we're less likely to seek career sponsors. Um, why do you think that is? And how do we approach that reality? Oh, that's a big one. It, it's a really interesting one because I completely agree with you. I find that as someone who is constantly um, on the lookout for speakers, mentors, judges for the kinds of programs that we run, what I find is that if I put out a call for speakers and mentors, um, men overwhelmingly put themselves forward. And when I uh, make it really clear that I'm looking for women um, in my call out, 
then women often nominate friends of theirs who might be good for it. So uh, we're in a situation where I think that there is probably a more kind of fundamental challenge that we have around the confidence that we as women and, you know, in so many ways, more so as women of colour, where the, where the challenge is a bit more complex in seeing ourselves as uh, subject matter experts in our field, seeing ourselves as uh, suitable and appropriate to, you know, share knowledge with someone. And there is a misconception, I think, we often tend to have that we aren't, we don't have the skills that young people need or we're not quite far enough in our career in order to be mentors or there's not as much value that we can add. And the reality is that, you know, someone half your age who has, uh, you know, much less corporate experience, who um, maybe a white male who has a fairly middle-class upbringing and who has kind of been taught to, you know, believe in himself from a very young age and may have parents who, you know, really understood how to navigate the system would be told that even if he doesn't really have much in terms of lived experience to offer, that he is, you know, capable of speaking or ministering on any subject that he puts his mind to. So there's a, there's a fundamental challenge in how we raise our girls and a fundamental challenge in how our education system prepares us for careers as women. And then there's a fundamental challenge with the way the workplace you know, helps build confidence and self-esteem and makes women feel that they are ready for promotion, for example, ready to sponsor younger people or mentor them. It's a challenge. And I speak to women every day who don't have the confidence, don't have the network, don't have the learned behaviours that make them feel comfortable putting themselves forward. But it can you can unlearn a lot of that. And I think it's so important that we do because there are so many young girls who are looking at us as examples of what they can be in the future. Yeah, you're absolutely right in in that confidence gap. You know, men are more likely to put themselves forward for a promotion. They're more likely to put themselves forward for a public speaking opportunity or any opportunity where they can launch themselves. Whereas I feel like as women, we tend to undervalue our contributions in the sense that we undervalue our expertise, we undervalue what we bring to the table. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And so how do you think we then deal with that confidence gap? We do that through a few different things. So one thing that I'm a big fan of is uh, coaching and mentoring. So I've, I've been thankful enough to have a lot of coaches and mentors in my life who have you know offered me the opportunity to you know find new perspectives to push myself further um, and I make the distinction between a mentor and a coach and often people who haven't had that much experience looking for either of those things don't necessarily see the difference but for me a mentor is someone who has the kind of uh, career um, or kind of uh, journey that I find inspiring and who could offer advice and support in terms of navigating whatever that space is. Um, and a coach is someone who is professionally trained to help me structure that thinking and find those answers myself. And often mentors are necessarily good coaches. And so finding 
uh, coaches um, in your life who are able to help you unpack a lot of the fears, anxieties that you have around your own career and your own value as an individual and working with them to kind of put yourself in a position where you feel more confident putting yourself forward and supporting people in whatever way that is. Public speaking is another thing that I encourage a lot more women to do. Um, again, if you look at the event uh, circuit, uh, there's a really, really strong male dominance. And I think there is a challenge around all-male panels, for example, panels, as I've just called, where they're just simply aren't women it's not because there aren't smart women who have that domain expertise it's because it's just very difficult often for organizers to within their networks find those people if they're not putting themselves forward so uh, there are a few different ways I think women can unlearn those um and you know we mentioned community as well and I'd say that building that community you know if you're not ready for a coach just having really, really supportive people who are in similar situations around you who can, you know, inspire you to kind of think differently about what you want to do, but also give you the tips and the guidance that you might need to take that next step. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I've definitely been, I guess, I hate to use the word victim, but of that confidence journey or um, that confidence struggle in the sense that I have always been quite fascinated and intrigued by speakers and public speaking, but it has taken me a very long time to actually say, okay, I'm going to do this. For example, with this podcast, I've probably been listening to podcasts for about five, six years, but it's only in the last year I've thought, okay, I'm going to launch my own podcast um, simply because I felt like, you know, you probably don't do it well or you, you don't really have the expertise. And I think as women, we are more likely to have those doubtful conversations with ourselves as opposed to our male counterparts. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the challenges around that are very complex. And I think it's so important that you are having this conversation at the moment that we're having this conversation at the moment um, because it is, you know, I'm not sure if when I was younger we were as vocal in addressing some of these issues. And I feel at least in the last few years and as I kind of progress my career at the moment that we are kind of stepping forward and saying, hey, there are fundamental issues here in terms of um, pay, in terms of negotiating higher salaries, in terms of access to different professions and the only way we can really address that is by having open honest conversations and supporting each other to uh, take those next steps so moving in a positive direction um i hope yeah, I, th- I certainly think so. And I think, you know, it starts with, I guess, the immediate circle. I know for me, it's it has very much helped having the conversations with my closest friends, people in the same industry, like my peers, you know, how much are you making, actually? You, you know, just having those conversations, what are you currently struggling with? How are you approaching this situation? How would you approach the situation if it were you? Kind of opening up ourselves to the people around us, because the reality is we all rise together. Exactly. Yeah. So what I'm really fascinated about Foundervine is that you not only help startups launch, but you also help them with the fundamental basics. So employability skills, um, soft skills. How important is that to the Foundervine mission? And what made that a part of your programs? So when it comes to starting up, there are 
really, really fundamental things that you definitely, definitely need to know. You know, there are things around, you know, uh, building a business model, building a pitch deck, uh, pitching to uh, investors or funders, all those things that you need to know. And there are lots of brilliant organizations out there uh, who can help you on that journey. Uh, But more fundamentally than that, there are social barriers that are in place for a lot of different types of people when it comes to starting up that are a bit harder to dismantle. And if you are a woman of colour, if you are someone from a working class background, if you are someone who has a um, you know, physical or you know, a disability of any kind, there are different challenges that you may face when you are starting up. And one of the biggest things we've found in our work when we are starting up is that confidence and self-esteem can be pretty debilitating um, as a as a factor which stops someone really achieving what is possible when they're starting up a business. And you know, we were saying earlier that being an entrepreneur, some people naturally have certain tendencies. There are certain tendencies which help a lot when you are starting up because in the beginning. You are your number one fan. You are your brand ambassador. You are your marketing, branding person. And if you cannot sell your vision effectively, you struggle to find people to back you, whether those are customers, whether those are team members, whether those are funders. So we spend a lot of time actually connecting people into ecosystems in which they just feel more comfortable having conversations. They feel like they are part of a supportive community. They feel safe. And a big part of that is also interweaving uh, public speaking skills and team working skills, you know, really, really immersive environments in which, you know, nothing is too stupid and it's okay to fail and rethink everything. And all of those things, particularly for the communities that we work with, um, mostly minority ethnic, mostly female, um, can be really important. Another thing we do a lot of is reflection time in our programs. And we find that particularly for women, and there have been studies behind this, you know, being able to reflect and take a step back is really helpful in terms of building the, the confidence to kind of go forward when it comes to starting a business. So we try to make sure that we're creating spaces that really speak to the needs of the communities that we serve. and. The feedback we get over and over again is how how different uh, sound design programs feel to the mainstream startup events, and that's kind of what's been a huge part of our ability to grow the community we've had over the last couple of years. Hmm. And in that same regard, then, what are like the top three qualities aspiring founders should seek to develop in themselves? You would say. So the, I would say um, let's go in order from um, bottom to top. Then so. Bottom, I would say, is the ability to just understand the business modeling process. So when we're starting out, I often think, I often break founders down into two kind of broad types. There are founders that have really strong domain expertise. For example, you're someone who you know, really likes computers. You spent your whole life working in computers. Now you want to start a computer business. Uh, you're really good at building computers, but there are lots of aspects of uh, running a business that you just don't get. And then there's another type of founder who maybe understands business and who's really into business and wants to run a business, but who doesn't necessarily have the technical 
technical domain expertise in order to make that a reality. So there's kind of need for you, even if it's just at a basic level, to understand the different elements of building a business model and bring that together. And a lot of our programs spend a lot of time on business modeling to help people, regardless of where their strengths and their areas for development are, to understand that process. So that's number three, sort of business modeling. Number two, I would say, is understanding a bit more about marketing and branding, because at the beginning of your startup journey, I'd say probably about 60% of your time should be spent marketing and shouting about your business rather than building it, because the challenge we have in trying to build everything without putting it out there and speaking to potential customers is that you end up putting something into the market which nobody wants, and you spent so much time building it and not talking to anyone that you've kind of gone a bit too far to be able to get that feedback and iterate and make it even better. So a lot of time should be spent at the beginning talking about it, marketing, getting customer feedback and pivoting as much as you can to actually make sure there's a product market fit. So marketing and branding, I'd say, is number two. And then number one, I would say is building out communication skills. So I often speak about the importance of storytelling and the importance of your key message and how to get that out there to different types of stakeholders, whether those are customers or those are funders or whether those are, you know, team members, potential team members. So being able to speak publicly, I think, is a really good skill, being able to communicate very clearly what you want to achieve, um, how to use emotion and logic to engage audiences, and actually just having that confidence and self-esteem to communicate that message as well. So three things, business modeling, uh, marketing, and uh, communication. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that a lot of people may have incredible ideas, but where if you cannot package it well enough to sell it to your stakeholders or your customers, you will find it quite difficult, no matter how good the idea may be, you'll find it difficult to actually get investment, whether that's like funding or whether that's just to get people to have the buy into your business. So yeah, absolutely, completely agree. So what are the biggest mistakes you've seen or you've known that early stage founders make in business? So one of them I have already touched on is spending too much time refining the product before bringing it to market. So in the in the startup space, um, we often talk about um, MVPs or minimum viable products. And it's such an important concept, the idea that when you're building, you build in quite a lean way. So you build something that's kind of close to what you eventually want to make. And then you put that out to market in order to get early feedback from potential customers. And it's those insights in the beginning that will give you the really valuable nuggets that you need to iterate on the product to make it better. And I think for a lot of us, um, it may be because of anxiety, it may be because of perfectionism, it may be whatever. We spend we can spend a lot of time trying to make sure it's perfect, perfect, perfect before talking to anyone about it. And then we realize after all of that work, that no one wants to buy it and it's too late to go back and we spend lots of money. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I'd say another thing is not focusing on building out the network. One thing I've learned 
across my career, not just in entrepreneurship, but in business, is that you, there's a kind of, I don't know if it's going to be called a network effect, but the impact of just having more and more people in your network means that you are ever closer to opportunity. And when you're an entrepreneur, that's even more so. So the more high quality connections we make, the more we nurture those relationships, the more we seek to collaborate and, um, you know, really integrate ourselves into communities, the more successful we ultimately all become. So building that community, joining those networks, not isolating yourself uh, when you're starting up is really, really important as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm making notes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right. Like testing, I think we we as like aspiring founders or budding entrepreneurs, we can get quite caught up in trying to have the perfect product so much so that we just don't launch anything or we launch something and we haven't spent enough time to figure out what people want or what the audience or the consumer want because we have this idea in our head because we have been so isolated. Um, So yeah, you're absolutely right in that. Um, One of the things that I wanted to touch on is that Foundervine has a lot of focus on women and female founders. And I I think I read something the other day that only 1% of VC funding went to all female-led teams in 2018 in the UK. And we talked about that confidence gap. For me, having seen that figure doesn't inspire me a lot. Um, It pushes me because I'm like, okay, I want to be, I want to increase that number. I want to do something that changes that number and changes the narrative for female founders when it comes to gaining funding. But the reality is, as a female founder, I'm probably more likely to go into a meeting with a VC investor and come out with advice or something like that rather than funding. How do we navigate that reality? Yes. So I think the the challenges around women and access to funding are immense and they are complicated by the fact that where men often tend to veer towards more traditional forms of business, women and indeed people from minority backgrounds do venture towards social enterprises, do venture towards non-digital enterprises or ones where uh, technology doesn't enable what they do. So in terms of just being attractive to investors, there's, there's a huge challenge there. So the kind of question there is how do how do we ensure that we are building that pipeline of women into technology? So even if they do not choose to pursue you know, technology careers or build tech products, they understand how technology can enable them in their business as well so there's kind of yeah it's such a broad challenge it's kind of on one level I I say to myself kind of how do we ensure that we're building the pipeline of women in technology yes but on the other hand how do we ensure that we are making uh, the investment community the funding community more diverse and representative so that women have women have access to VCs and angels who just understand what they're offering also and also how do we actually ensure that women these women have the confidence and skill set to be able to pitch effectively to these funders as well so there's there's a 
There's a dual challenge in the investor community and in the founder community and within our education space about how we how we move forward to ensure that we're building that pipeline. Yeah, I think we talked about it earlier and you mentioned, you know, employability skills among young women. I I definitely don't recall having any conversations around a career in tech as a woman. I'm probably sure that the the young men in my cohort probably did. So like you said, I do think there is there is something within our educational system that needs to address. And I think we are moving in the right direction because there's a lot more conversations around women in tech and young women and and girls in school are being exposed to opportunities in technology where they can build careers, which will ultimately satisfy or enable them to diversify their their sort of uh, entrepreneurial adventures when it comes to gaining funding um, from, from investors. So yeah, I do think there is definitely some educational system policy and issues that need to be addressed, I guess, if we're ever going to fully satisfy that space. Yeah, yeah. And there are there are definitely conversations that are happening which are really promising in the education space. But unfortunately, um, so much of our provision for young people is still really disjointed and it's still really dependent on where you're from and, you know, the kind of school you go to and kind of university you go to and how, how supportive your parents are and all sorts of factors play into it. So definitely an investment in enterprise and digital support when we are much younger, I think ultimately this has a better outcome for everyone, not just those individuals who benefit, but society more generally who can benefit from the products and services these people go on to create. Yeah, and I think I think one of the big things that I've personally struggled with, having come from a background where no one really went to university, there wasn't anyone in tech, entrepreneurship wasn't really part of the conversation outside of my dad. So there weren't really women who had their own businesses. No one really did um, digital or technical careers. So you know, you know, there's always that sort of, am I good enough? Am I capable? Especially coming from a working class background, there's always that sort of, I guess, conversation in the back of your head, questioning whether you are able to do what you are, you know, what you are pursuing. And I think the biggest thing for me has been um, dealing with my imposter syndrome, especially like that, that for me has been a very big thing. And one of the things that I've been doing to deal with that is being very aware of my value and what I bring to the table to the point where I even, I will even write it down (laughs) over and over again. Like I can do this and I can do that. And these are where my strengths are. Because I think in those moments of doubt and of feeling like we're a fraud, um, we forget our value. And I think imposter syndrome probably is a is an attack on our self-value or an, our awareness of what our value is. So that's, you know, that's one of the things that I think we certainly have to deal with. What about you? How have you navigated, if you have ever struggled with imposter syndrome, how have you navigated that narrative? Thank you for sharing that. I think I think a lot of us definitely feel that sense of imposter syndrome, and it's been it's been a really interesting journey for me in terms of speaking to people who I may not 
traditionally think would have imposter syndrome. So senior, you know, white heterosexual men, for example, in the organizations I've worked with, and you find that everyone <laughs> gets imposter syndrome. I think we all have it, but where our differences are more overt, you know, it, it's, and, you know, our experiences are a bit, are a bit different in terms of the challenges we face. The, that sense of imposter syndrome can be a lot more profound. I found that when I was starting my career, I definitely always used to see the world through, firstly, the lens of, of my race, and secondly, the lens um, of my gender. And I say race first, because that is, unfortunately, in our society, one of the bigger barriers. And then, you know, as a woman on top of it, the intersectionality of being um, both a, a black person and a woman ends up kind of uh, compounding uh, issues um, in so many ways. And it's been a journey towards unlearning a lot of the behaviours I therefore adopted to kind of cope with that situation. And um, what I mean when I say that is that being able to broaden my network and to expose myself to different types of people, different types of background has one taught me that we all in in our different ways um, suffer from the kind of, uh, you know, imposter syndrome or anxieties that come from navigating the world and navigating our careers. And uh, one of the antidotes towards feeling like that is building a community around you who are really, really supportive. And they don't necessarily need to be from your particular walk of life or background, but people who are genuinely supportive of you and who are willing to kind of help you get to where you need to go. So building that community. And then owning your story as well. I think it's taken me a very long time to feel comfortable sharing kind of where I'm from or where I grew up and how that's impacted on my career or my life today and freeing myself from the holding that part of me back when I walked into a workplace um, has actually led to a more kind of a more fruitful and more productive relationship between myself and my workplace and my colleagues and so owning my narrative building community around me who are genuinely supportive I think those two things go a long way in combating that imposter syndrome and realizing that every single person you know from the queen of England to an intern uh, will feel that way at some point in their life and the most important thing is to recognize that so you can feel it feel that fear um, and do it anyway yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned getting to the point where you were able to talk about where you're from and how you grew up and like owning that narrative. For me, it's always been interesting because I think it, it took me a while for me to see the world through my uh, the lens of my race. I come from a mixed background, so I kind of saw it through that. But for me, it's always been seeing it through my class. I think for me, that was the biggest struggle because we weren't necessarily poor, but the opportunities that we had was very limited. And when I say, when I say limited, I mean very limited. Um, you could probably count on less than one hand how many um, people in my family went to university or had um, quite, you would say, traditional, stable working opportunities. 
So it was always that thing, I I guess, the chip that I carried on my shoulder. And when I was probably around 13, I went to a different school and I started to see how different people lived. And you kind of carry that weight off. You know, you go two ways. You carry the weight off, you know, I'm not really like them. That's not really my space. And you try and find the people who are like you. But for me, that would have kept me in a box. And I recognized from a very young age, I had to sort of open myself up to different people and different ways of life and the way that different people have lived. And that kind of exposed me to what was possible for my life, even if that meant I had to work twice as hard for half as much (laughs) Um, because I didn't have the same support that they did. But it made me realize that there were opportunities out there It just meant I really had to really hustle and I really had to work my bath. And I'm grateful for those. And I think one of the ways that we have to deal with, I guess, confidence issues or imposter syndrome is putting ourselves in uncomfortable places, you know, and learning from the people who have done what we would like to do, but also being very aware of what we think our limitations are and working on those. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's just such a complex psychological journey yeah. you have to go on to get to the point <laughs> yeah. where you say, you know, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And um, you realise how much people who don't come from, you know, the same, you know, lived experience that you do just don't have to deal with all of that emotional labor that you have to put in place to get to exactly the same place but it makes you such a stronger person in being in having that experience and having those struggles and it means that you you know you can resonate with people who also have those challenges as well and help them get there so um it's definitely it's amazing that you're able to sort of use that experience to your advantage yeah and i think i think it's definitely one of those things that we don't think we don't think or we don't talk much about how having those experiences actually can shape us to be better human beings but also better entrepreneurs or better workers um because for me i sort of developed a personality to fix things and to solve problems so i became quite resilient in the sense that no one handed me anything so i had to go figure it out Um, And if there was a problem, I had to fix it myself and I had to be quite resourceful in doing that. You can't waste resources because you don't have that many anyway. So you kind of learn, you know, attributes and develop qualities that other people who haven't had to experience what you've had to but they probably just haven't had the chance. They haven't had the opportunity to develop those. So I think sometimes we have to change the lens of our perspective a little bit and see how that, you know, our experiences do add value to the work that we want to do versus taking away from what we want to do. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I, I definitely want to ask is, you know, so many people may have ideas that they want to launch, businesses that they want to fulfill, but they're not sure where to even begin. What's your recommendation, especially for women who have an idea, but they're just not sure if it's viable or they're just not sure where to even begin, but they know that they want to be entrepreneurs? 
or they want to start something that will have an impact? Yeah, so I would recommend two things. So the first is to go through a really simple business modeling process and uh, a tool that uh, I often encourage founders to use is the business model canvas. And, you know, it's quite a common one within business schools, but there's also lots of uh, information on the internet about how to complete them. But essentially, the business model canvas is a one-page business plan and you can complete it in about a couple of hours and look at the different elements of it and pretty much to see whether you've got a good idea, whether it makes sense when you put all the different elements together. And if it doesn't, you either need to go back to the drawing board or get some feedback on how you can make it better. So I would say completing a business model canvas, um, you know, Googling it and kind of finding out more about that and uh, the way it's structured is kind of talk you through what the value proposition is. So that's thing that your new business idea is bringing to the market that just simply doesn't exist elsewhere and the most important thing I think on that is that you're able to answer that question well um, and then understanding what your customer segments are who are your customers who should you be talking to how do you make money and um, what are the most important costs you need to partner with all of those really really important questions that you need to ask yourself you can answer in that canvas and just a kind of two-hour coffee by yourself for your earphones in so I definitely recommend that as a first step the second would be to find a coach and it doesn't have to be a formal coaching relationship. Um, it could be reaching out to someone in your network who has some understanding of starting a business um, and just getting some feedback on the idea and some thoughts on what you should be doing next. Often the kind of questions that someone is able to ask are the ones that really kind of guide us towards understanding whether we should pursue the idea or not. And I think at the beginning, it's very important to realize that it's very unlikely that you're going to end up in a year's time with exactly the same idea that you're talking to that person with at that very moment. Ideas change, they pivot, we get feedback, they grow, they fail, they burn, so we pick them up. And it's a very hard journey, um, but it's one that's so rewarding um, if you're able to continue pursuing it. So getting that feedback from the go, from people you trust, can be a really rewarding um, opportunity to kind of build the confidence in sharing that and taking it forward. Yeah, I definitely agree with the ideas changing. I mean, when I started, uh, when I had the idea of Work Thrive, which which wasn't even Work Thrive when I um when I had the idea three years ago, you know, I just I was thought I'm just going to do a blog you know, and then and just write about all these employability skills that I'm learning or that I'd like to share and where women can find opportunities to either build a business or what events are going on, etc. And I thought, actually, what if you just turn that into something else? What if you brought tech into it? And I got and I got really involved and really interested in using technology as a way to bring that idea. And I'm still in the process of niching down that idea. So I think it's definitely being open to your idea changing and pivoting not necessarily quitting on your idea but pivoting yeah yeah so we're just going to go into the fast five round I'm going to ask you five questions and you just give me the first the first response (laughs) that comes to mind is that all right okay okay so could you tell our listeners a software resource or app that's helped with your business that you'd like to recommend Yes. So my um, absolute favorite piece of software at the moment is Notion, 
which is a project management tool, which is fantastic if you are like me, the kind of person who couldn't really organize themselves to save their lives, but who kind of needs that structure. So I manage um, Soundvine on Notion. I also manage my own personal goals and journey on Notion as well. And it's very intuitive, very easy to use and is available kind of has a free plan that you can start with as well. So Notion is one of my favorite um, tools for project management. Brilliant. And what is a personal habit that has helped you in life and also in business? I would say that one of the habits that has really helped is its curiosity. Um, And I say that because when you are starting up, there is so much you have to learn and there are so many people you will meet who will offer you a new perspective on something that will will help the business grow in some way or which may help you grow in your own career in some way. Be genuinely curious when um, approaching the business challenges, being genuinely curious when approaching new people and situations and, you know, traveling to different uh, parts of the world and seeing where the kind of thing that you do works in that particular market the curiosity, I think, is one of been one of the biggest pieces of being able to kind of get where we are at the moment. Yeah. And what's one book, podcast, or event that has helped you significantly in the past year? So one book that has helped quite significantly is a book called uh, The Lean Startup, which I think is um, for for so many people a bit of a a Bible when they're starting out and it's been really helpful in terms of just understanding the kind of process of uh, building a business in quite a lean way um, as the name goes and even if you don't follow that process you know page by page but it gives quite a, a nice kind of structure to start thinking about how you're building your own business. The lean startup definitely been one. Brilliant. Um, what's one lesson you have learned the past year that's helped with your professional and or personal development? Yes. So one lesson I have learned is to completely um, and unapologetically um, invest in building the skills that will add value to my career and my business. One thing I think we often neglect sometimes in the course of our really busy lives but after we've left school and we're just working you know taking that time to do professional and personal development and it doesn't necessarily have to be a course you know really spending events um having coaching relationships just constantly learning and seeking knowledge i think has been the most important thing for me in terms of helping me get to the point where i am now with especially as a startup where you just, you just simply don't have enough manpower to be able to do a lot of things. You need to learn a lot of stuff yourself in order to just keep going. Yeah, it's it's about investing in ourselves, isn't it? Because we are our first brand and our first business, I guess. Yes, exactly. So finally, what's a word of advice you would share with women to cultivate their own thriving careers? So one thing um, we haven't talked about, uh, so I, I think... Uh, throughout the course of this, uh, doing more public speaking, presentation skills and mentoring, both being mentors and being mentored um, has come up quite a bit. So I think one thing I'd, I'd want to leave with is one that hasn't 
and that is potentially joining a company board or being a trustee for charity. And I say that because in the course of uh, my career, I've seen a lot of brilliant young people who have the potential to contribute to some of the organisations which kind of run our lives, um, but who who just aren't sitting on these boards. And um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around um, taking up those kinds of leadership roles, being non-executive directors, being trustees. And for that reason, a lot of organisations are governed by people that don't represent uh, our societies. So I would say that taking steps to kind of learn about becoming a charity trustee um, in a sector that you find interesting for an organisation that you love, or becoming a non-executive director for an organization which you feel a vested interest in developing will be hugely beneficial for um, your career, hugely beneficial for your network and give you the opportunity to understand what senior management looks like at that at that level. So that's that's a really big one for me. Yeah, I can completely sit behind that recommendation. I'm currently on an advisory board for for an organisation and I have found so much benefit um, from being exposed to how businesses really run at um, at the highest, at pretty much one of the highest levels because you're exposed to quite a lot of decision making. Um, you're exposed to the network. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I can definitely stand behind that recommendation completely, completely. And it's not something that people think about a lot, actually, to find out other ways to support, um, to support organisations and to support the work that's being done without necessarily being completely on the inside if that makes sense yes yes and the, and you know I, the question I often get is but where do I find out about stuff like that and you know the sad thing is that there's not necessarily a centralized resource for this kind of stuff and a lot of it does involve um, approaching these organizations and starting to build those relationships and I, I love advisory boards and um, I joined my first when I think I was about 14 and it was um, Haringey Youth Council <laughs> and it was just you know it was, it was just young people really interested in building their local community and you know taking the opportunity to do that. so there are so many opportunities to engage and they just take a little bit of hustle a little bit of entrepreneurial energy to find yeah absolutely so before we close off just tell us where we can find you on the socials if we want to find out more about you or Foundify Yes, absolutely. So I am Izzy Obeng, that's I-Z-Z-Y-O-B-E-N-G on pretty much every social media platform. Um, and Soundervine, um, S-O-U-N-D-E-R-V-I-N-E, um, is the same on every platform as well. So um, I'm most active on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram if um, anyone wants to reach out to me. Thanks for listening to Work Thrive, the podcast. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcast as it allows other entrepreneur women like yourselves to find the show. And if you want to join the community, head over to Instagram at Work Thrive. Speak soon.